Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Halloween season has a special place in the heart of Little Five Points, and the neighborhood's annual Halloween parade and festival normally attracts upwards of 70,000 visitors. Like last year, though, there won't be a parade this year because of COVID concerns. But fear not, L5P's Halloween festivities are far from canceled. The neighborhood has created a full slate of celebratory events spread out over a few weeks' time. City Light senior producer Kim Droves brings us the details later this hour. First, at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, it's always lovely to stop and smell the roses, so to speak. The flowers and plants on view now in the special exhibition, Supernatural Glass Art in Bloom may be difficult to smell, but they are spectacular giant creations by the Seattle glass artist Jason Gamrath. He joins us now via Zoom with Mary Pat Matheson, the garden CEO. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Mary Pat, how did you connect with Jason? You know, we are always on the lookout for the next fabulous art exhibit. And it came to my attention several years ago from a colleague of mine who is the CEO of Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh that um, they were showcasing this amazing, young, talented glass artist named Jason Gamrath. And I saw the images. I was not able to go up and visit the show personally uh, live, but I saw the images and the photographs and it was, it was just so spectacular that we then reached out to Jason and I went out there, right, Jason, and visited you um, outside of Seattle several years ago and we hit it off and I had really the great experience of seeing his work at his home and outside his home. And it was just so inspiring. It just seemed like a natural fit for us to do this and collaborate with Jason. Jason, why did you choose glass as your art form? I think I just love the challenge of working with it. It's very difficult, but it's so rewarding when you get it right. I think I was pretty competitive when I was young and just about everything that that I could get involved in. And, and glass playing is almost like a sport, a sport where you end up with something just permanent and beautiful forever. Glass, is, glass doesn't go away. It kind of captures this moment of whatever it is you're infusing into it. So if you're having a, a rough day, you know, it shows in your glass work. And if you're having a great day, and I've been lucky enough to have quite a few, we end up with just masterful, beautiful things beyond what words can describe. And I think just chasing those, those fleeting moments of something amazing just really stuck with me. That's beautifully put. 
What is the difference between glass blowing and glass sculpting? Or is there a difference? I think it's just a terminology, but kind of like, uh, what's the difference between a car and an automobile? Oh, I think glass sculpting is kind of the newer incarnation of glass blowing, which started out as a traditional Venetian decorative and functional thing. There are limitations within glass blowing. You have a blowpipe and and maybe some solid glass to work with, and that's about it. You can only do so much with that. Modern glass blowing is really whatever you can imagine. If you can find enough people and enough time, you can really do anything you can think to do. You have some fantastic photos on your website. I mean, really powerful looking photos of the process for someone unfamiliar with how glass blowing works. Can you describe that process? Yeah, absolutely. It's more of a team sport than I think most people realize. I probably have maybe four or five assistants that have to be there the entire time we're making something. So it starts out as a molten 2000 pound blob of glass in a furnace. And it's about 2,100 degrees Fahrenheit. If you're on the metric system, I'm sorry. (laughs) I think extremely hot covers it. Very hot, glowing lava hot. And it's, it's kind of the consistency of honey. And so that's where really what you start with is that honey-like blob and you dip some metal tubes into it and you pull it out and it all has to happen within as long as you can hold it. If you, if you stop moving, it'll just drip onto the floor. If you don't move enough, it gets too cold and explodes. So there's this fine line between having it so hot that it, whatever you're making is a puddle and having it too cold that it has a thermal shock and, and literally rips itself apart right before your eyes. And so it's the minute that you get that blob of glass on there till the minute it's in the annealing oven, which is what cools it down when it's done, you've got only that time to work on it. So it has to happen only as long as you can stand in front of a 2000 degree furnace. So to kind of help speed things up and get be able to get a piece that would take a hundred hours into the time period that you can stand being in there, maybe four hours. Um, we get lots of people doing lots of things at once. You're, you're kind of the conductor when you're, when you're the glass artist. Oh, I love all these metaphors. We've got sports teams, we've got orchestras. Tell us what you do as a conductor. It depends on what we're doing. Every piece is so different. And because of that, every shop is different. So if we wanted to make a carnivorous plant, we have to build a, a shop that's ready to make a carnivorous plant. If we want to make an orchid, we have to build a shop to make an orchid. So build a shop, meaning a different furnace, different, different furnaces, different uh, sized annealing ovens, different ways to manage those individual pieces. You can see some of them are, it's about six different sculptures melded into one. I don't know if I'm doing a great job of explaining all this technical jargon, but... No, this is a fascinating job because who has any idea when we see this beautiful work before us, the number of people and the science required to achieve it? Yeah, there there is some science, definitely. This show has 13 installations of about 150 pieces. How long did it take you to create all of those pieces? My whole life, really. I think I started glass blowing when I was 16. The first one I made, I'll probably spend about five years just learning how to work with glass. And then from that point, when, when I got really good, it took me still three years to make the first orchid. Just really a complicated thing to do with all these other people involved and shops and everyone else's schedules. So when everyone's together, it's kind of just this well, we're all here right now, and we're only going to be here for a few hours. What can we all do together that, that we'll all be on the same page about? And you kind of treasure the people that work under you, your assistants, because, you know, you work with somebody for maybe five years on one piece, 
if they leave, you start all over again with another person. So these teams have to be really in tune with each other just to do the most basic of things. And then you start getting really complicated and you start flying people in from all around the world. And lots of people come over from Italy and different parts of the country. And you really have to make the best of those, those moments that you get. So it is a true apprenticeship line of work. It really, yeah, it's one of the few things that I, I think that still has an apprenticeship. Jason, you are from Seattle, probably the most famous glass sculptor we know of is Dale Chihuly. Did you apprentice with him? I think I was probably too young when Dale was coming up. We all kind of work with the same people and I think a lot of people that work for him work for me and, and vice versa. But I was about maybe eight years old. I think you were way too young. <laughs> Very exciting time though. But you know, t- towards the middle of his career is when the knowledge kind of started expanding to the point where I was able to be allowed to have the information to know how to do all of this. I, his school that he started a long time ago called Pilchuck, really the, the epicenter for American glass, even globally, people come from all over the world to come study there. And I was lucky enough to be one of those people a long time ago. That started out as his shop. He kind of went off into a different different uh, studio and that became the school. He still is very involved in, in the place. And of course he loves it. It was kind of his, his masterful creation, I think was that school. Mm-hmm. That's saying a lot. You made 30 works exclusively for this show at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. How did you decide on which flowers and plants you wanted to create? Mary Pat and myself and, and Mary Pat's team and my team, we all kind of, you know, agreed on a few things that we could do in the time frame, very site-specific things. Uh, so it was great to be able to design the piece for the space instead of the other way around. I think we probably made about at least 2,000 pieces of glass just in the last times a little weird. I think it's about a year-long process, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, kind of rotating shifts, thousands of pieces of glass. Seattle glass artist Jason Gamrath and Mary Pat Matheson, CEO of the Atlanta Botanical Garden. We'll return with more of our conversation about Gamrath's installation, Supernatural Glass in Bloom, after this short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return now to more of my conversation with the glass artist, Jason Gamrath, and Mary Pat Matheson, CEO of the Atlanta Botanical Garden. We're discussing Gamrath's garden installation, Supernatural, Glass Art in Bloom, which represents a lifetime of work from the artist. Here, he details some of the site-specific works that make up the exhibit. Some of the taller ones are about 14 feet of just solid glass. 14 feet. Okay, this is not a little 
glass flower you would put on your tabletop. This is like a tree. It, it, they're like big trees, really, they are. Yeah. Would you describe a few of your favorites? I really love, we did these lotus flowers. Yes. Uh, five of them. And I think they are about 14, 15 feet across. And so 50, whatever that is times five, it's just a massive, beautiful, scaled flower. It's just perfect. It really came out nice. Really, if you, if you imagine looking at a photo of the most beautiful flower that you've ever seen, and imagine just walking into a room and, and walking around it, that's really what it's like. Yeah, you have a philosophy of why you make such large-scale floral and plant creations. Why make them that large? I think you start with something that's already beautiful, and if you scale it up, it just becomes so easy to realize how beautiful it is. Even if you look at a blade of grass under a microscope, it's incredibly beautiful. You could spend a whole lifetime making work about a blade of grass. It's, it's almost hard to narrow it down to decide which ones you want to do. And you, we only have short lives and I could spend a thousand years and just never even come close to making one tenth of a percent of, of the beauty of it. Would you tell us about the Darwin orchid? I read that you are particularly fond of your Darwin orchid. I do love the Darwin orchid. It's this alien-like looking orchid and has a cool story that goes with it. Mary Pat, do you want to, do you know the story of the Darwin orchid? I do, I do, I do, I do. Well, it's named for Charles Darwin because he discovered the flower and it has a long a sepal that so it's a long tube that looks like it's part of the flower it is part of the flower and that's where the nectar in the flower is and Darwin discovered the flower but then he created a hypothesis that said there must be a moth that had a proboscis as long as that nectar tube which is over 12 inches long and on a flower that's you know maybe a few inches across so it's it's ridiculously proportioned and they didn't discover that moth until 50 years after Charles Darwin had died. But sure enough, they found that there was a moth, and still is, that has a proboscis that is 12 inches long that will go down into that nectar tube to get the nectar and thereby also pollinate that orchid. And that's just a beautiful example of the, the interface and the, the web of life, right? What came first, the orchid or the moth, but they depend on one another for life. And we have that in our plant collection. That's, that's one of the other things that when we met Jason, it was just such a great opportunity for us to work with this phenomenal artist, so talented, who also understood how important different plants were. And Jason loves orchids. And we have the largest orchid center in the United States and one of the largest collections in the world. Jason has always been infatuated, as long as I've known him, by pitcher plants. And we have the largest carnivorous plant collection in the world. A pitcher plant is a carnivorous plant where the fly is attracted to the flower or to the, to the pitcher and flies into it and cannot get out. And it's filled with liquid that's basically like your stomach acid and it digests the insect. And that's how pitcher plants thrive. And so to find an artist who could create these giant plants from our collection was phenomenal because we can tell the story of our, our mission and plants, biodiversity through artwork. That's just, that's what it's all about. Oh, I love that intersection. That Venus flytrap is quite some installation. How did you create such vivid colors? It's a layering process. So if you think about glass as Think about it more like water, like you're looking at in a perfectly clear lake and you can see right down to the bottom. And th imagine that the water was, was bright green. Everything is kind of bright green. So you're, you're looking through many different kind of fields of color when you're looking at some of these pieces of glass that look too bright to really exist. So you're seeing through a layer of clear color and then a, a solid layer of white. So you're getting a backing to your really iridescent color. 
and then your light comes from the inside out as well. So glass is just a really fascinating way to capture light and distort light to your whim. You do that so beautifully in a species, I don't know, in a particular orchid that I admired. Just seeing the photo, I don't know the technical name of this orchid, but at first I thought it had to be porcelain because it looked opaque, and yet it had the translucence of the finest porcelain. I can only imagine what that entailed, and can you help me, maybe Mary Pat, with the orchid I'm thinking of? It looks like the kind you often saw in bridal, mother-of-the-bride corsages. Is that a symbidium? Uh, so it's either the cattleya, which you often see in the corsages, or it is the moth orchid, which um, is a phalaenopsis, which is pale pink often and very translucent. And we have both in the, in the collection of art that Jason has made for us. What, what color was it? A, a beautiful sort of a cross between pale pink and lavender. It's probably a phalaenopsis, I would say, phalaenopsis. Which is that moth orchid, yes. It's kind of the more common one that you see if you, if you go around and look out into the world. I think that's one thing that I really like about those orchids have become so popular. Long ago, they were treasures. People would cross continents to bring them back. People died trying to go get these flowers. People would do some incredible things for something beautiful. I really love that we kind of have them around now. And whenever I think of an orchid, I think of some long jungle excursion and crossing oceans for for months and months and months, keeping this plant alive long enough to get it back so people could see it. Now now we're spoiled. (laughs) Now we can grow them so we don't have to take them from the wild, which is really an important thing. You know, as much as those travelers were going far, far distances, mostly from Europe to South America to take the orchids from the wild. Some of the ships would carry a million orchids and be happy if if a hundred survived. So that exploration was the way to introduce them to the world, but also um, created real challenges. And one reason why they remain endangered today is because people still take orchids from the wild. So if we have an opportunity to celebrate this beautiful plant, which is the most uh, diverse of all of the flowering plants. There are more species of orchids than any flowering plant in the world. Um, we just want to encourage people to buy them from growers who are doing it in a way that they're not taking from the wild anymore. Yeah, responsibly. Jason, were you trying to approximate a fine porcelain appearance with that creation? Oh, you're, you are correct. That's kind of also the beauty of glass. You know, like I said earlier, you can have light going all the way through it, or you can have light bouncing off of it. If you restrict the light going through it, you get a much, a much more porcelain looking piece. If you let the light go through both sides, you get that beautiful glowing look to it. You know, a lot of them, uh, orchids, kind of, some are kind of like a waxy feel. I don't know if you have ever tried to touch some of these really cool orchids, but they're not, um, they're not very delicate, some of these orchids. Some are, are very robust, and you can't see light through them. Some of them are very fine and delicate, and it almost is impossible to not have light gl- making them glow. I think, you know, I, Mary Pat could correct me, but I'm sure there's some evolutionary reason why they do that. But uh, I like to kind of capture as much realism as I can while kind of providing an unreal setting for it. Oh, they're gorgeous. I'm thinking of shipping packages I have sent marked fragile. And I imagine bubble wrap on stage steroids with you transporting these works. How do you transport them? Well, they're kind of like big Lego sets. So every little piece comes off and that's 
some of the challenges in designing it are, you know, to make sure that we can move the things. They get very heavy, thousands of pounds, um, some of them. Um, so they all kind of come apart into little individual pieces of glass. And then we take big blocks of foam that are like a square dimension of the piece. And then we sculpt the foam into a negative, a perfect negative of the piece of glass. And then the glass goes into this foam coffin that's entirely filled with hand cut foam to make sure that they, are, they get where they're going safely. And that's almost half of the work is just moving it carefully and slowly. I think it was two or three semi trucks full of all of this stuff to get it out there. And we, we like to do it very carefully. And we are talking about going from the Northwest to the Southeast. That was quite a journey for these creations. It, it's a hard to think about sometimes when you just hop on a plane, but really things do have to go a long way. Mary Pat, what was it like to see these pieces put together? That's a great question. And, you know, it's one of the things I love about doing installations in the garden, and we do it collaboratively. So Jason and I and Emily Sisseni, who runs our exhibitions program, would get out and work together. And, you know, sometimes we think we know exactly how we're going to lay out an exhibit and we're, we're out in the field. We make design changes. So we were working on the Strickland border, which has, oh, Jason, do you know how many orchids are in that display? It's probably... 15 of your tallest orchids probably 15 or 20 stems yeah which is i don't know it's it's just spectacular five times that in flowers lots <laughs> so it, it is a mass of orchids that are 15 feet tall in a garden that's now just in full color and beautiful and we were trying to decide whether should we, we should go from the phalaenopsis to the cattleyas and have the colors all match and anyway Working together, making design changes in the field really sometimes is where things come together in a magical way because that's one of my favorite installations. And I've seen Jason's work in other places, in photographs, et cetera, and it's always glorious. But I think what we did here is really something quite remarkable. And so those, those field decisions working together in collaboration are what make an exhibit really shine here in the garden. And the other part of that is Jason is really wonderful to work with and understands that if we create a flower bed under his his work, we're going to design it so that it shows the glass in the best way possible. Either sometimes by complementing the glass, if there's a lot of pink and purples, we use pinks and purples underneath, but sometimes to contrast with it, to make it really pop. Now, I think that's the magic of a museum without walls, which is what the garden is, is that the work is out in nature and in plants. And if we do it thoughtfully, and if we do it together in partnership, we can really make the real flowers beautiful and complementary to the glass that's all about the beauty and, and the inspiration of plants. And that's what this exhibition does in such a remarkable way. The garden is really the canvas and I am the brush strokes and we kind of figure out how to how to perfect it. We really did a, a great job. I can't believe how cool it looks out there. Seattle glass artist Jason Gamrath and Mary Pat Matheson, CEO of the Atlanta Botanical Garden. The exhibition Supernatural Glass Art in Bloom is on view now through October 31st. Speaking of October 31st, in a moment, Halloween festivities in Little Five Points. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta's Little Five Points neighborhood is a nationally celebrated bohemian enclave where the eccentric is actually the norm and judgment is reserved only for those who are judging. 
Halloween season has a special place in the heart of Little Five, and the neighborhood's annual Halloween parade and festival normally attracts upwards of 70,000 visitors. But like last year, there won't be a parade this year because of COVID concerns. Fear not, however. L5P's Halloween festivities are far from canceled. The neighborhood has created a full slate of celebratory events spread out over a few weeks' time. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently spoke with Little Five Points Business Association board member and co-owner of the Corner Tavern, Melanie Rapp. They were joined by festival contributing artist and fabricator Sam Carter. Rab started their conversation by detailing some of the many spooky events happening in Little Five this month. We've got ghost tours Friday and Saturday through the first week in November. We're participating in the Atlanta Celebrates Photography Festival. So 20 winning photographs are going to be in storefronts all through Little Five for a self-guided tour. And Chronic Sellers is throwing a Halloween crawl October 6th. And we can all walk around and look at the photographs outside and stop in to try wine at local businesses. And there is a Venmo raffle where you can go on Venmo to little five points dash Halloween. And we have some really big prizes. So it's $5 a ticket. Um, once you Venmo it in, we write, we'll write down your name and then there'll be a drawing on Facebook, October 30th. And we have some big prizes. We have a Porsche experience an SNS fire pit lots of local art and local businesses gift certificate. That's wonderful. And that's something that people could do virtually if they weren't able to make it out. Exactly. Yeah, you, it, you can be anywhere and we will contact you if you win and we'll make sure we get the prize to you. That's awesome. And then the cherry on the pumpkin Sunday is Monster Fest. <laughs> and I'm really excited. And we owe so much thanks to Shane Morton with Silver Scream Lab. He's a busy guy, but he loves Little Five Points, and he really stepped up, and we call him the Monster Wrangler. He has got 13 local artists that are going to be stationed at different businesses in Little Five, and on Saturday, October 16th, there'll be a monster hunt. So you go around the neighborhood, and you find the monster, and you take a selfie, and then we come back to the Business Association tent. There'll be a limited edition monster magazine with all the artists. And that's your prize. So we're excited about that. That's wonderful. Well, I want to get back to the ghost tour in a minute. But since you mentioned the Monster Fest, and we're lucky enough to have Sam Carter here. Sam, I'd love to know how you decided to get involved and create some art for donation this year. Is it through your connection as well to Shane Morton? It is. Shane reached out to me early on in putting this thing together and told me what he was doing. And we've worked together uh, in the past for Adult Swim, and we've kind of been on each other's radars for a long time. So he's very familiar with with my art and my style and the kind of uh, weird creatures and, and things like that that I make. He asked if I would be interested in uh, putting together an exhibit for it, and I immediately jumped at it because it sounded like a ton of fun. So yeah, that was how I got involved with it. it, was all thanks to Shane. Well, you're a good egg to get involved, and on your portfolio, you call yourself a professional art goon for hire. <laughs> and looking through your portfolio, my Goodness, Sam, you've done some incredible work. A lot of it is fabrication for sets. Can you talk for a minute a little bit about the piece that you made for Black Panther, the molecule lamp? Absolutely. I worked on Black Panther, I believe that was in 2018. Uh, I was working for a lead man named John Nerlick, and I told the, the people I was working for early on, hey, this is my skill set. These are some of the things that I can do. And they came back to me and they said, we've got this weird piece for uh, Shuri's lab. Here's some concept art for it. Would you like to take a crack at it? Said, Absolutely. So I spent you know about a week and a half gluing acrylic balls and tubes and, and coating things in silicone and, and then handed it over to the uh, lighting department to light the whole thing up. I had no idea it was going to be so prominently 
featured in the set. And then, you know, when the trailer for the movie came out and I saw it in the trailer, I was like, oh my God, that thing, you know, I got some screen time. Yeah, it did. But yeah, I, I worked on a lot of stuff that's going on in the background of Shuri's lab in that movie. I spent a good portion of that film putting together, you know, weird sci-fi looking experiments. Oh, how fun. What a good way to use your creativity. And then for the little Five Points Monster Fest, can you talk a little bit about the art that you created for that? I'm actually repurposing a mascot for another project of mine, a maker show called Make It Weird. It's um, a YouTube show that's trying to teach families, younger kids, some of the basics of prop and puppet building and uh, set piece building, things that they can go out and make their own monster movies with. And so one of the the mascots for this show is this giant psychedelic Sasquatch that I uh, that I built when we were all <laughs> stuck at home in quarantine in 2020. Uh, his name's Cosmo. He's built as a functioning puppet, and I, I don't know if he'll be puppeted during during the Monster Fest, during Monster Hunt, but I'll have him and a couple of other creations on display, as well as some custom-made trick-or-treating buckets that I'm, I'm going to have to to give out to people who show up in costume who impress me with their cool costumes. Impress Sam, people. You want this stuff. That's really, <laughs> really cool. I love awards. I'm looking at the Psychedelic Sasquatch online, and it looks gigantic. Is what you're bringing to Little Five that larger-than-life puppet it's, fabrication? Yeah, he's he's about uh, the head of him. is It's about three feet tall. I actually... Um, I made him out of an old plastic blow mold Santa Claus head, like the kind of thing that you'd see hanging on a a window or a door at Christmas. So I took one of those and took it apart and then covered it in latex and fur and, and all sorts of stuff to turn it into that creature. He has such a sweet expression about him, but almost a little distraught. Is he distraught? (laughs) Uh, I would say he is soulful. He's a a deep thinking Sasquatch. He is absolutely adorable. I can't wait to see him in person. I try with a lot of the stuff that I make to make it so ugly that it comes back around to being mildly cute. Oh, success. More than mildly. Absolutely (laughs) adorbs. I love it. Melanie, can you tell me a little more about what's going on at the Monster Fest? Sure. We have Professor Morty's Haunted Market. Euclid will be closed and it'll also be at the Little Five Points Community Center. And then we'll have the monster hunt going on. And then also Saturday and Sunday is the Tito's cocktail parade. Several bars in the neighborhood have created monster cocktails. And we'll have a map and you can go around and try their creations. And we're going to have pop-up performances and music and face painting and all all the fun Halloween things. Tell me more about pop-up performances and music. Well, the Seed and Feed marching band. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and there's going to be that's great. There's gonna be music at the Star Bar and at the Community Center. When you say at the Star Bar, is that in reference to the parking lot behind the outdoor area? Yes. Yes, it'll be back Wonderful. There. We love a good outdoor show nowadays, oh, don't we? Yeah, I love, I love all those things. Those are pandemic perks, is what I call them. That's right. I hope they stick around. Melanie, can you talk a little more about the ghost tour? I've never really heard any specific stories myself about ghosts in Little Five. So tell me, what are the stories? Well, you know, there's been many stories floating around, and we've just finally taken the time to put them together And then it was verified by a neighborhood psychic named Adam. I can personally say for the tavern, the story that was written for the tavern really, I was shook after I read it because it talks about Deacon Lunchbox haunting the tavern with members of the Jody Grind Band. And nobody knew this, but my husband's best friend was in the Jody grind and was killed in that car wreck. And so I was like, I can't believe that this was the story. We weren't involved in, in writing it or the research or anything. And that's the story that is for our location. That is absolutely nuts. And for those who are newer to Atlanta, or at least newer to the music scene, could you just speak for a minute about the tragedy that hit our community with the Jody grind back in the day? It was, um, it was Easter Sunday, and they were coming back from a show and a drunk driver crossed the um, highway and crashed into the band coming back and it just devastated our community the two members 
from the Jody grind. We're best friends with, you know, now owners of businesses in Little Five, uh, Rob with Java Lords, my husband. And it just, it really took a long time to recover from that loss. Yeah. And so now a psychic has told you that they are hanging out at the corner tavern. Yes. And I just couldn't believe it when I read my story and I, my husband, I just couldn't believe it. I'm, I'm very interested to take the tour myself. I only read the part for our establishment, but it's legit. I'm hoping we can keep it around, but it's definitely running through the first week of November. That is a really cool story. And you said you don't know any of the other ones to share. I don't have the other ones to share. Yes. Yeah, so there, uh, it was all, it was definitely top secret. They didn't want to, um, convolute the stories. So I'm really interested to see if the other ones are as bone chilling. Yeah, not to harp too much on the situation, but I am fascinated. Did your husband, what were his feelings when he heard that? Did he say that he had ever had any vibes there before? Well, he's really quiet about things like that. I mean, we've had stories and things we've seen on video where glasses have flown off. You know, the wine glasses that you slide on, they've just flown straight off and fallen. And we, like we've seen things on camera in the pool room, definitely stories like when the staff is closing up, things will happen. Like no one likes to go in the pool room at closing alone. Really? We have stories like that, but you know, my husband's just never gotten over the loss of Rob and he's pretty quiet about it, but I, I don't think he was surprised to think that he would still be around in spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope it, it brings him comfort to know that he's still checking in on him. Yes, yes. Oh, I can't wait to hear the stories for the other establishments. Um, for those who don't know, the Corner Tavern, you know, has been with us for, for quite a while now, but that exact location has a much longer history. Yeah, I think it started out the Redwood. They used to say it was the first stop after you got out of jail. You would go to the, the Redwood Cafe, and then it was definitely the Little Five Points Pub, and Don Bender started that, and he's very, very, very community-minded, and that really was the seed that you know started this you know unique community. After it was the pub, it was Fellini's Pasta, and then it was Dr. Rib, which you know Little mm. Five was very vegetarian back then. Dr. Rib. <laughs> Nobody, nobody, nobody was happy about the smell of like smoked barbecue. Oh gosh. Times have changed. Um, (laughs) And then it was homage. I loved homage. It was a little vegan cafe. And then it was nine lives. That was like loud music. They'd closed up the Gothic doors. Very, very different vibe. We found some real treasures when we took over and started cleaning up. Oh, do tell. You know, just... (laughs) Things in the walls, a lot of uh, things that you could sell on eBay, a lot of rock and roll memorabilia. And we also, wow. you know, got eight copies of Playboy there every month for like the first three years we wrote. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we could have wallpapered the walls. Who doesn't get their Playboys delivered to work? Yeah, eight copies a month, one for everybody. So, um, <laughs> and so then we've been there... We're going on our 16th year. Congratulations. That's a wonderful run. And it's such a great part of the community. Melanie, where do the proceeds from the Little Five Points Halloween events go? A lot of people don't realize that the parade is a fundraiser for the Little Five Points Business Association. So all the funds that we raise go back into the neighborhood. Security, cleanup, different things like that. So I think it's really important that when people are coming out, they realize that they're putting their dollars back into this awesome neighborhood. That is really important because Little Five is a wonderful community. I've personally lived in or around it most of my adult life, but it's also a community that attracts people far and wide from across the country and from across the rest of Georgia and keeping an area that brings in so much tourism clean and safe is not cheap. Exactly. That's what's so cool about Little Five is it's so important to everybody and we want to keep it great for the people who live here and great for the tourists. Do you know the history behind the parade and festival? How long has it been going on? You know, they were talking about it was going to be the 20th year last year. But Mm -hmm. after we've done some research, Carter Stocks, she owns the building, her and her uh, daughter, where the Porter and Southern Star Tattoo Shop. And she said the parade actually started in the 70s. And so she found pictures of definitely it was a lot smaller, but it was still the businesses putting together little floats and going through little five points. So it's been going on for a long time. That's really cool. I'm looking at a picture or a poster of our lands from the 10th anniversary, which 
we thought was in 2010. I need to ask Arlan because he has such a great body of work for the parade. You know, maybe he did the artwork for 20 years, so it might have been the 20th year of him doing it. You know, his artwork really represents a huge part of the parade. It sure does. And for those of us that are unfamiliar with our land, he's actually going to be on the show within the next couple of weeks. Our land's work is very prominent within Little Five Points, and he's really woven into the fabric of Atlanta quite a lot. He actually designed the ghost for the ghost tour. Oh, cool. And it's super, super cute. I love him. I love his work. And speaking of artists, Sam, can we talk some more about some of your cool work? Absolutely. It looks like you have a Christmas-themed puppet production that you've fabricated. Is that accurate? Yes. So that came about, actually, Michael Haverty from the Object Group reached out to me uh, towards the end of last year and said that he had been contracted to produce a version of A Christmas Carol using puppets and he wanted me to be the production designer for it so i uh, i designed all of the cast of characters and the set built a lot of the bodies i worked with russ vick and uh, a couple other local artists to put everything together but yeah that was uh, that was a fun one i had never it was interesting because we had just come back from quarantine and i was working on a movie you know working 60 70 hours a week Um, I had agreed to take that job just before I went to work on that movie, just before I found out that, you know, we were all going back to making movies. So suddenly I I was very overcommitted and uh, was like literally uh, (laughs) sitting in my car on my lunch break with my iPad out drawing characters and then like going home and working for a few more hours. So I was definitely uh, burning the candle at both ends for that one. If people were riding around Atlanta wondering if there's any Sam Carter art to look at, could they find anything out in public view or is most of it sold for industry work? I'm trying to sort of diversify what I, I do because I've most of what I've done has been strictly in film and television for about a decade now. And it's only recently that I've been trying to, to get out of just that lane and start uh, start participating in other uh, other artworks and other you know public works. So not at the moment, but hopefully in the near future, I would I would very much love to to contribute to you know, the art scene of Atlanta. The best place for anybody who wants to, to keep up with my work or with what I'm doing would be to go to makeitweirdworkshop.com slash subscribe. That's going to be where most of what I'm working on now will be available for people to check out. You mentioned Make It Weird a little bit earlier on, but do you want to describe it a little more? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about it. It's sort of what I'm putting most of my, my energy towards now. Well, do tell, man. Teaching kids how to make stuff is amazing. And if they could make stuff like you make stuff, okay, that would be life-changing. <laughs> it would be. So it came about last year, again, when we were all you know in quarantine, Fulton County Arts and Culture Commission um, they were giving out grants to people who wanted to create online content for, uh, for people to do at home. And so I applied for a grant to teach people some basic, you know, uh, movie special effects, prop making, puppet making, uh, monster makeup, that kind of stuff, predominantly using things from around the house. And I ended up getting the grant and I was able to get uh, a bunch of my very, very talented buddies, including Shane Morton and also Jim Stacy, who was, uh, who's going to be one of the artists at, uh, at this year's Monster Hunt uh, to come out oh, and teach wonderful. some episodes. And so we did 10 episodes for our first season and we put those out. And, you know, that, I kind of felt like that was going to be a standalone thing. Um, but my business partner, Thomas, uh, kind of pulled me aside and was like, there's something to this. We could, we could build this into something much bigger. And so that's sort of what we've been, we've been working on since then. We're shooting new episodes now. And, you know, I, I'm trying to build a platform that doesn't um, doesn't become quite as exclusive as a lot of what I see on YouTube. You know, you go to a, a YouTube channel, it's like, we specifically make props out of foam. Uh, here's a YouTube channel that specifically makes Muppet-style puppets. Here's one that does armor. And I want something that doesn't put those kind of limitations on, on what it is that we're teaching. I'd much rather put together a, a platform that is about, you know, taking reused objects, taking found objects, taking stuff that you already have at your disposal and seeing what kind of creative works you can you can get out of that. So, you know, take what you have on hand and use that to kind of open up your imagination and and uh, and come up with some amazing stuff. And so that's that's sort of what we're doing. Oh, Sam, I love that. Use what you have already, right? 
That is so cool. I love so it. it's still it's still in its infancy. Um, as I said, we're shooting shooting new episodes. We have big plans for uh, for where we intend to go with it. But uh, but right now we're still still just kind of starting out, getting getting our sea legs under us. I guess would be how I'd put it. What a great resource for not just kids, but anyone who wants to use their hands more creatively. Absolutely, I hope so. I hope that's what. Uh, I hope we are able to provide that, not just to Atlanta, but to, you know, to Georgia and to, to everybody. I want to see more makers. I want to see more kids off of screens and actually, you know, getting dirty and, and in shops and working with tools and building stuff. Oh, my gosh. Amen to that. I support, <laughs> yes. I support you, Sam, 100%. <laughs> Little Five Points Monster Fest contributing artist Sam Carter and Corner Tavern co-owner Melanie Rapp. The neighborhood's Halloween festivities are already underway with ghost tours happening through November and a plethora of activities taking place on October 16th and 17th. More information about the festival, as well as Sam Carter's art, can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian Jim Norton stops by ahead of his weekend shows at the Atlanta Punchline. Plus, we'll hear more about this year's Elevate Public Art Festival. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.